Well, if we'd open our Bibles to Romans chapter 15, and we'll begin reading at verse 7. Paul says, Wherefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy as it is written, Therefore I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles, and I will sing to thy name. And again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. And he's quoting from the Old Testament. And let all the peoples praise Him. And again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a sense in which these verses that we've just read bring us to the end of Paul's presentation of the gospel in Romans. Uh, As we saw last week, Romans begins with a prologue where he is uh, giving his greetings and telling about his plans and his desire to come to Rome. And then about halfway through chapter 1, he begins to set forth the gospel. And that goes, that presentation of the gospel goes all the way to the end of chapter 11. And then in chapters 12 through 15, he begins to apply the gospel. And all that comes to an end with the last verse that we read this morning. That's verse 13. From, from verse 14 on is the epilogue. It's the closing out of the book of Romans. So, um, the greetings and things that he gives at the beginning and uh, the talking about his plans and hopes to come to Rome. He takes that up again in the epilogue and he gives some closing greetings and there are some wonderful things in the epilogue, but it's he's basically done with his presentation and application of the gospel when we get to verse 13. And so these verses that we've just read are the last section not only of Paul's appeal for unity and love in matters of indifference, which started at verse 1 of chapter 14, uh, but they're actually the last section of the whole application that began back at 12.1 and uh, comes over to verse 13. So this is Paul's closing word before the epilogue, before he goes back to things that he said right at the start. And in one way, you could say that he basically wrapped up everything in verses 5 and 6 that we looked at last week. Uh, He says, May the God who gives perseverance and encouragement, verse 5, grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You could say, well, he could have ended there. But he wants to say a little bit more. Um, 
he wants to put all this in a broader context. He's been talking about eating meats and observing days and so on, but he wants to put it in the broader context of Jew and Gentile. And so he says in verse 7, Wherefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us. And he goes on and talks about Jew and Gentile. In light of everything he's saying, wherefore, in light of everything that we've been saying, and in light of everything that I said back in chapters 9 through 11 about Jews and Gentiles, accept one another. Verse 7, accept one another, for Christ died for both Jew and Gentile. And that's what he goes through in verses 8 to 12. So the question comes up, why did he close off like this? And I think the answer is that a lot of the problems that he's been talking about in chapter 14, for example, should we eat these meats, sacrifice to idols, uh, should we observe certain days, a lot of those problems really kind of centered around differences between Jews and Gentiles. There were some Jews, like Paul, that could eat anything and it didn't bother his conscience. And uh, there were some Jews that to realize, like Paul, that one day is not any different than another day. Now, also, there were some Gentiles who might have felt bad about eating meats, sacrificed to idols, because they had just come out of idolatry. But by and large, it was the Jews that were the ones that were weak in their consciences about eating meat. And they were, by and large, it was the Jews that were weak in their consciences about regarding every day the same. And by and large, it was the Gentiles who had less scruples about things. And so these divisions and differences, even though it wasn't totally a Jew and Gentile thing, it was, a lot of it did relate to Jews and Gentiles. And so he wants to take this whole thing out into that broader area of Jew and Gentiles and talk about that before he closes out. And so, you know, we've got to realize that we're talking about centuries of prejudice here. For, For a thousand years, more than a thousand years, for a thousand years, no, quote, righteous Jew had ever set foot in a Gentile's house much less had they ever eaten a meal with a Gentile. They were dogs. Literally, they called them dogs. And they were unclean. It was contaminating, just like you don't touch a dead lizard carcass or you don't eat pork. You don't go into a Gentile's house, you wouldn't think of sitting down at a meal with a Gentile. So that was coming from this side. From the other side, these Gentiles that had become Christians, you can be sure that before they were converted, there was plenty of hatred and bitterness towards Jews. They viewed them as weird and obstinate, to say the least. And just think of the concept, if you were a Gentile, I mean, you lived in Corinth or in Rome or somewhere, and these these strange people that won't even enter your house and have all these food laws and all that, they they despised one another. And, and you don't like being called a dog anyway by somebody else. And so that was the context, and we, we forget about all this, 
But that was the context in which Christ had come, broken down this divide, all these dividing walls, and made them into one. And so Paul ends this whole section with one final appeal that they accept one another from both directions. He says, accept one another. So he's saying to the Jews who have become Christians, fully embrace these Gentiles. And he's saying to the Gentiles, fully embrace these Jews. And notice the reason. Just as Christ, verse 7, just as Christ also accepted us. And you know, this is a weighty consideration, isn't it? Suppose somebody's coming to you and you reject them, push them away, and they turn away from you with their head down and they run to Christ and He opens His arms and welcomes them. That is a blot, isn't it, on you? That says something about you. And uh, that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying Christ is not only opened His arms, He's welcomed them. He's welcomed both Jew and Gentile. And so should we. That should be our attitude. So in light of that then, Paul reminds them in verses 8-12 to of things that he has already said in different ways uh, in earlier chapters, and especially back in chapters 9-11 through where he dealt with this whole Jew and Gentile thing. But at any rate, he feels like it's important to say it again. So in verse 8, he says, I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the Father. So here the emphasis particularly on what Christ has done toward the Jews to confirm the truth of God and the promises that were given to the fathers, that is, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you remember Paul dealt with this back in chapter 9 where he said it looked like the Word of God had failed. And that was a big problem. Um, What was it that made it look like it had failed? Well, all these years... God had made these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to their descendants after them that one day the Messiah was going to come and that He was going to save His people. And then the Messiah does finally come and most of the Jews miss out. They're not saved by the Messiah. They're just hardened and they're rejected. And their house, Jesus says it, your house is left unto you desolate. He came to His own those who were his own did not receive him. And Paul says in Romans 11, he says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block to them. So all of their blessings were turned into curses, it seemed like. And the question is, how can this be? How can God's promises be true and all this happen? It was a major, major problem. We don't feel it because we just have the idea, well, we're Gentiles. We're the ones that Christ came for. It, the big thing was the Jews. You always see it everywhere. Every time it's, He comes first to His people, and then they turn to the Gentile. But the, these were promises made to the fathers. And Paul takes a lot of time in Romans 9-11 through to explain why it is that the Word of God hasn't failed. But he brings it up again here. He says Christ came, and instead of going back through it all, he just makes the statement, he took care of everything. He confirmed all the promises made to the fathers. 
And he established the truth of God by his person and by his work on the cross. He just makes that statement. And um, that was true. He did everything. Christ did everything necessary uh, to confirm the promises of God. As he says in another place, Paul says, for as many as may be the promises of God, in Him they are yes, in Him they are amen. So whatever promises were made, all of them have been fulfilled in Christ. And he just mentions that again. Christ became a servant to the circumcision, the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. But He came not only to serve the Jews, He came also to save the Gentiles. And that's in verse 9. For the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy as it is written. Notice how much this ties in with the glory of God. We saw that in verse 7. Accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And verse 9, that the Gentiles might glorify God and go back clear to verse 6 that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it brings glory to God when we have unity. When we don't, it doesn't. It brings glory to God when we accept one another, when we receive one another. And it brings glory to God when Gentile dogs receive mercy. That brings glory to God. Why would God ever have mercy on me? Well, He might do it just for His own glory. That's a great glory to God to save people like us. And so Christ died that dogs might glorify God for His mercy. And again, Paul talks specifically about this back in in chapter 11. Now let me just read it to you. For just as you Gentiles once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, the Jews, so these also have now been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience that He might show mercy to all. So, you remember Paul, even Paul himself, he says, I was shown mercy in that I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Uh, I remember a fellow who was in jail and um, um, he was uh, uh, responding. I think it was, I think somebody had borrowed his radio and they dropped it and he uh, turned viciously upon him and somebody turned to him, one of the other inmates turned to him and he said, show a little mercy. And that broke his heart. That spoke to him. <laughs> show a little mercy. Think of how God shows mercy. Just merciful. When we deserve the opposite, He's shown us mercy. And uh, so Paul specifically thinks of this of the Gentiles. Here they are out here separated on the outside. And God has shown mercy. And so the Gentiles glorify God for His mercy. How thankful we should be. God showed mercy to me. Didn't show justice. 
He's done that all along, but if He showed justice to us, we'd be in hell. But He's given us mercy. And we ought to get, be merciful. So then in verses 9 through 12, he gives a series of quotes from the Old Testament showing that God's plan all along was to include the Gentiles in his salvation. Now, that seems like a contradiction because Paul says in other places that this whole thing of the salvation of the Gentiles was a great hidden mystery that has just now been revealed. You remember those passages? Let me let me read one to you. This is Ephesians 3. He says, By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To What mystery? What's been revealed? To be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So he says this is a great mystery that has now been revealed that the Gentiles are going to be saved. It was, a, it was hidden. All those years it was hidden. Now it's been revealed. And then here in this passage, he quotes a half a dozen verses where God specifically said He was going to save the Gentiles. So how does that fit? How do those two things go together? Well, in answer to that, I just say, isn't that the way it always is? God says it over and over and over, and it's right on the surface, and we can't see it until the time comes, and He makes it clear how it's going to happen. They could not take seriously. Every Jew is reading the Old Testament, and God, for example, God said in Abraham, all the nations, all the Gentiles, that's the word, all the nations are going to be blessed through Abraham. And then you see these verses about the Gentiles praising God and the Gentiles putting their hope in Christ. And you read all those things and it just kind of goes, I mean, after all, those Gentiles are dogs. And you just miss it. And so when Paul says that something was hidden and now has been revealed, he's not saying it wasn't in the Old Testament all along. It was. But now it becomes clear what it means. And so... Looking back, we can see this was prophesied all along, but no one could understand it, how it could take place until it actually did. So let's look quickly then at these Old Testament quotes. Verse 9 is a quote from Psalm 18, where the praises of God are being sung among the Gentiles. So he says, therefore, I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles, and I will sing to thy name. And then verse 10 is a quote from Deuteronomy 32. Now that's called the Song of Moses. And Paul has made reference to that three times already, back in chapter 10 and 11 and 12. For example, the quote from the Song of Moses, I'll make them jealous by people that are no people. Remember, he's talking about Gentiles there. So here again, another quote from the Song of Moses. And the Gentiles are being called upon to rejoice with His people. Verse 10, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. Then verse 11 is a quote from Psalm 117. And he says again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Now I'm going to, I'm going to read, I'm going to do something you shouldn't do in the middle of the sermon. I'm going to read the entire Psalm. Alright? Listen to it. 
This is the entire psalm. Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud Him, all peoples. For His loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of God is everlasting. Praise the Lord. That's the whole psalm. (laughs) Two verses. Now think of this. The entire psalm is calling on Gentiles to praise the Lord for His loving kindness and His grace. It's an amazing thing. And Paul goes back to that and he says, look, this whole psalm was about that. About Gentiles being saved and praising the Lord. And you can see the progression. Uh, first, the very first one that he quotes, it, the psalmist is praising God among the Gentiles. And then in the next one, verse 10, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So here now the Gentiles are with the people of God rejoicing. And then when you get to verse 11, it's just the Gentiles by themselves praising God. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. And then finally, verse 12, a quote from Isaiah, where it's talking specifically about the Messiah. There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. So this Messiah is going to be the object of hope for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. So what a gospel this is. Every barrier of race and nationality and ethnic group, language, slave or free, everything broken down. It's, it's amazing. Colossians 3.11, Paul says there's no distinction between Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. You remember in another place he says there's no male or female. But Christ is all and in all. So there's no distinction between a Greek and a Jew. That's incredible. There's no distinction between a slave and a free man. That's incredible. No barbarian. Listen, even Socrates said this. He said there were three things that he was grateful to fortune for. Now, they didn't believe in God, of course, but fortune, had, you know, chance, with a capital F, fortune. He's grateful to fortune, quote, that I was born a human being and not an animal, a man and not a woman, a Greek and not a barbarian. So he was thankful to fortune that he was a Greek and not some barbarian. Now, the amazing thing, and I think Dick read this quote when he was dealing with uh, Christ's teaching about women, but the Jews had a similar prayer, and they were thanking God that they were born a human being and not an animal. Maybe they got this from Socrates, I don't know. but And they thanked God that they were born a man and not a woman, And I thank God that I was born a Jew and not a Gentile. So Socrates is thankful that he's a Greek and not a barbarian. The Jews are saying, I'm so thankful I'm a Jew and not a Gentile. And Paul says there's no Greek, there's no Jew, there's no slave, there's no free man, there's no barbarian. And then he mentions Scythians. And that was a particularly vile form of savage Gentile, a Scythian. And uh, I actually read up on the, the Scythians. It's quite a long thing, but they were 
particularly considered to be uncouth savages. They made drinking cups out of the skulls of their enemies. In fact, they've discovered workshops where they were, it was kind of a, you know, a skull drinking cup workshop where you made drinking cups out of the skulls of the enemies. That's how they manufactured them, in other words. Paul says, you might even have a Scythian that becomes a Christian that you'll be hugging and praising God for saving him. Isn't that amazing? There's no Scythian. There's no Scythian. He thinks about the worst thing he can come up with, and he says there's no Scythian in Christ. Christ is all. Amazing words. Well, um, no Jew and Gentile in Christ. In Christ, even the Gentile shall hope. And the mention of hope in verse 12 brings Paul to his closing prayer of the whole section, verse 13. And really, this is the closing prayer of all of chapters 12 through 15 as we've seen. After this, the epilogue. So how does Paul end all of the exhortations of chapter 12 through 15? Well, he says this, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, To me, this is one of the most wonderful verses in the Bible. It's possible to abound in hope, to just be overflowing with hope, and it causes you to abound, to be filled with joy and peace. And it's tied in with believing. It just doesn't work if you're full of unbelief. And we can't have any of it apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that helps us to believe and to abound in hope. So, I want to spend the remainder of our time on this subject just to, we talked about it a lot back in chapter 5 and in chapter 8, but many of you weren't here then. So I want to say a little bit right now about it. Hope in the Bible is not, I hope so. It's not a an expression, I mean, in our everyday language, hope is kind of an expression of doubt. Well, I hope so. You know, are you going to get an A in that class? Well, I hope so. Maybe I won't. And sometimes, depending on how you emphasize it, you can make it even more doubt involved in the word hope. But in the Bible, hope is some has to do with confidence, not with doubt. And Paul actually talks about exulting, exulting in hope. Now that should tell us something about the meaning of hope. Hope in the Bible is confident, joyful expectation of something that we know is coming, but we don't have it yet. Something that I know is coming, that I can almost taste it, but I don't have it yet. And I'm confidently, joyfully looking forward to it. Uh, Paul talks in Corinthians about the plowman plowing in hope and the the thresher, reaper, reaping in hope. What's it mean? Well, I've used this illustration many times, but I do that because it means a lot to me. And I I can get a feel for this of what hope is. 
When I was uh, growing up on the farm and we would haul hay, um, there was a looking forward to the end of the day. And I experienced this. I didn't, I knew what it was like. At the end of the day, it might be long dark, everybody's exhausted. You take that water from the hose and clean the, the, the straw and everything off of your arms and you're waiting. And my dad would be there with his billfold and I remember so well there in the, in the light of a night light outside, him taking those crisp $20 bills out of his billfold and giving it to the different guys that had worked. And it was, it was something that I knew was coming. And all day long, when you're in the heat of things, you're thinking about, I know this is coming. That's hope. That's what he's talking about. It's confident expectation of something coming. And it enables you to bear the burden and the heat of the day. A lot of our problems, see the Bible says so much about hope. It's got so much related to hope. It's one of the big three, isn't it? There's faith and there's love and there's hope. Let me get, just get, give you some verses quickly. Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. We give thanks to God, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. And so, and then... Um, since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Love bears all things, believes all things, there's faith, hopes all things, and endures all things. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three. So this is a big thing. Why is it such a big thing? Well, because hope is such a big thing. Now, this is what I wish we could get. Hope is such a big thing in the New Testament because most of our salvation is still in the future. The vast majority of our salvation is still in the future. We've just tasted a little bit of salvation, a tiny, tiny bit. And a lot of our problem is is that most of the time we're acting like this is all there is. And the reality of hope is we, we're just on the brink of eternal life. We're right on, we're on the edge. And like Paul, you know, he's going through all this stuff and he says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, what's that compared to this eternal weight of glory? Beyond all comparison. See, what's that? He's got hope. He's looking to what's coming. That's how he could bear those burdens. Peter says we're waiting for a salvation ready to be revealed. 
You know, a lot of the old Negro spirituals, they were in agony. They were being beat and what have you all day long, and they're carrying heavy burdens, and what are they singing about? My home is over Jordan. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to take me home. They're looking at what's coming. The church does that whenever it's in grueling situations because you realize in a little while, it's just like Fanny Crosby, those last two songs that we sang, she was blind. What a shouting there will be when each other's face we see. She never had seen any of their faces, but she was going to. Beloved, this is nighttime compared to what's coming. And the Bible speaks that way. Paul says, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. So just about to be morning. One of the Puritans was dying. He says, I come now to the end of my life. He said, wait a minute, scratch that out. You know, they were writing his final statement. He said, scratch that out. I come now to the beginning of my life. (laughs) That's the biblical view. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. The sands of time are sinking. The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for. The fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark has been the midnight, but day spring is at hand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. It's like the night's almost over. The day's at hand. That was Paul's desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And he talks about having the first fruits of the Spirit groaning within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. He says we've been saved in hope. Hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, what does he yet hope for? But if we hope for what we don't see yet, then with patient endurance we wait for it. So, this whole subject of hope has very vital, practical outworkings in our lives. It protects us from the enemy. Paul says, having as a helmet the hope of salvation. With picture going into a battle with no helmet on your head. Everybody else has got these helmets protecting their head, and you're out there like this. You know, <laughs> it's there's you've got to have this helmet of hope to protect your head. In the battle, confident, joyful expectation that God really is your rewarder and that He'll keep His promises. Hope causes us to endure. Hebrews 6, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one that enters within the veil. And 1 Timothy 4.10, for this we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God. That's what enables you to labor and strive. Romans 12, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. That's right there in the middle of it. Persevering in tribulation and devoted to prayer. Well, what? Rejoicing in hope. And the hope causes us to purify ourselves. 1 John 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. 
if you know that one day, very soon you're going to be with Christ and you're going to be like Him, it causes you to want to be holy now. And finally, it fills us with peace and joy. And that's these verses here in, in Romans 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us a foretaste of heaven. Paul prayed for the Ephesians there that they have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him that you might know what? What is the hope of His calling? Be filled with the reality of it. Eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed them to us by His Spirit. That's the only way that you get a feel for the reality of it. I've shared many times, one time years ago when I was over there in Germany, I think maybe Dick was back here visiting for a little while in the States, and I was mopping the floor in that coffee house where we lived. And... Those verses, he that believes on the Son has eternal life. It just became real. The Holy Spirit made it real. I have eternal life. I, I've, whenever God saved me, my sins were gone. I have eternal life. And it just overshadows everything. He that believeth on the Son hath eternal life. You know, um, we can meditate just on the one thing Jesus said. He said, then will the righteous shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. That's what's going to happen to every Christian in a moment. And, you know, um, a lot of times we don't realize, it's kind of unreal to us, but do you realize in how, how long will it take after you die, suppose you were killed on the way home today in a car accident or something. How long do you think you'd be in heaven before everything utterly changes perspective? I mean, five seconds, one second, everything totally, everything that seems big and important shrinks to nothing. Everything that seems far away and unreal is suddenly this really is true. <laughs> it's really true. I like this little uh, poem, Absent from the Body, Present with the Lord. Oh, think to step on shore and that shore heaven, to take hold of a hand and that God's hand, to breathe new air and find it celestial air, to feel invigorated and to know it immortality. Oh, think to pass from the storm and the tempest to one unbroken calm, to wake up and find it glory. This is the reality. All of a sudden, in a moment, you know, and I think I like this, breathe, you breathe in air and you realize this is celestial air. You feel invigorated. If you just had the flu for a week or two, you really feel. Think, think of just realizing you're alive. You're totally alive. And you're in heaven. 
to wake up and find it glory, to pass from the storm and tempest to one unbroken calm. Well, all of those things are just just a little bit away from each one of us, just a heartbeat away, really, aren't they? And so, Paul prays for the Romans. He says, I, I'm, I pray that, that you would abound in hope, that the God who gives hope, the God of hope, would fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you might abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. There must have been many times when Paul was discouraged, languishing in a prison or hanging on to a piece of a ship, floating in the Mediterranean. That happened. We know that happened. There must have been times where God gave him glimpses of the reality. This is really real. And our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is nothing in comparison. Well, that's his closing prayer. It's amazing, isn't it? After all he's said in Romans, uh, what he said about the gospel and how he's applied the gospel, he closes everything off with this prayer that they would be filled with the reality of these things with all joy and peace in believing by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ought to ask the Holy Spirit to grant us to be able to get a glimpse of of the reality of heaven. The, the, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Paul says, the sun's about to come up. Let's cast off the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. The Lord willing, we'll go on next time and uh, begin to look at um, the epilogue, the closing passages where Paul talks again about his desire to come see them. We get some amazing statements in the remainder of chapter 15 and in 16. There's some wonderful things in both of these. Even these names, uh, the various people that he greets have a lot of significance. So, may the Lord help us and... uh, Yes.